0: Okay, I don't want you to be prejudiced by the title of my talk, okay? So I just want to start with some audience participation. Don't worry, it's not going to be community singing. I just want to give you opinion. Up here we have some emotions, okay? And what I'd like to, to do is, for, before we start, is for you to think about, if I had categories and I would say uniquely human, adult human, and probably in children and animals as well. So I want you to tell me which of those emotions you think are, are uniquely for sort of adult mature humans and which you think, oh, I st- hold it a sec. Oh, that's right, oh, I've just gone, oh, okay. Uh, yes, a memory test. So, 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 so is it clear, so, so for example, if we started with, with jealousy, do you think jealousy is uniquely adult human or do you think you might see that in in children and animals as well? Yes. You're going for children and animals as well. Okay. So, so we get jealousy in both. Okay. Anger? Yes. Both. Okay. So anger's in both. Okay. Embarrassment? Yes. Yes, both. Both? My goodness, you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Actually, if you say embarrassments in both, okay, okay, pride. Oh, you're going for pride as well. Goodness, okay. Okay. Fear's going to be easy. Fear's easy. Uh, surprise? Surprise is easy. Okay. Guilt? Oh, 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 you're very really certain of that. Okay and sadness, oh my word, you going for, you know, okay, I'll stop, are there any there you think that they don't have? Empathy, empathy. thank you, I don't care if you're the only one who thinks that, I'm going for empathy, <laughs> okay so we've got empathy down there, anything else? Shame, shame. okay, we got shame, okay, so I know, I'm talking about, I should, I should have really been, being really specific, I, I, you know, I should have been more clear. When I say to him, I really mean neonates, I mean really young children, I mean babies, I mean sort of, just sort of few weeks old. And I didn't make that, cl- oh, I, I'm so sorry. But I didn't make that clear, does that change anything? I hope it does change something. And I I think that animals can feel. Okay, okay, I will start again. This hasn't gone well, my audience participation hasn't gone well. So, so why don't we start again? <laughs> And I'll go over to say, okay, that um, neonates, very young infants, jealousy, yes. probably no, anger, yes. definitely, embarrassment, no, no. no. pride, no. fear, yes. surprise, yes. guilt, no. sadness, yes. love, affection, yes. oh, oh, oh. <laughs> happiness, yes. shame, no. empathy, Disgust? No, yeah. That's an interesting one. We'll come back to that. Grief. No. Okay. It's about some anger. So if I was to sum it up, we're pretty sure of things like anger and fear and surprise, sadness, love, affection, happiness, bit more reticent about things like jealousy, shame, empathy. Those sorts of things that's that's summarizing it. Okay. If we can bear that in mind till the till a bit later, I shall now try and Make sure. Okay, I should just give a... I haven't introduced myself, really. So, my name is Dr. Paul West. Uh, I'm going to talk about animal emotions. Just a little brief mention about how I got interested in animal emotions. I, did, I actually did, did my PhD in human psychopharmacology. I was interested in, actually, the effect of nicotine on... Uh, uh descending reticular activating system in the brain, what it what it does to your experience and behaviour. And then I went off to work for a drug company and I and now I became very interested in behavioural pharmacology. And what I did was I spent my time some of my time modelling depression in rats. Those sorts of things. So and that really sort of started to pique my interest in 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 animals in and how they felt and, and what we could think about them in, in that very applied context. Okay. Now, what I want to do today is, or this evening, is really answer some questions. I want to say, do non-human animals have emotions? Yes. Okay. Oh, you're pretty certain. Okay. If yes, which ones do they have? Anger. Oh, you're certain of Angana again. How? Next big question is, how would we know? Behavior. Come back to that. Last matter. Does it matter? Okay, we all think, oh, you're all a very certain audience. I think, I think I'm preaching to the converted here. Okay, I'm actually going to start with number three. I'm actually going to start with how actually might we know about uh, animal emotions. But I'm going I'm to frame it in a more broad context first, is how might we know about animal mentality. So, how do we know that animals have any kind of feelings, thoughts, cognitions, however you want to frame it? How would you know that? Now, I'm sure most of you wear this the big spectre that hangs over anybody who is interested in animal psychology or animal mind is the spectre of anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism, to, as a definition, is essentially um, attributing to non-human animals, qualities that are essentially human, Okay, and it's a big scientific sin. In fact, before it was a big scientific sin, it was actually a big theological sin, and the actual term anthropomorphism was first used in a, in a, in a sort of a negative way, is that people weren't supposed to describe God in human terms, and it's funny, it's, it's remained its negative connotations, you know, from being a theological, being bad theologically, now to be bad scientifically. So, the thing that everybody gets very exercised about, and I can see you, you, you're an audience so I don't have to work quite so hard at. If I go, if I go to scientific um, uh, conferences, I really have to sell the idea that animals have emotions and feelings and those, and those sorts of things because the thing that everybody comes up with immediately is saying, How, if I say an animal is, is angry or an animal is sad or whatever, I'm being anthropomorphic. I'm projecting my feelings onto the animal. How can I know? And for those vocabularians amongst you, one of my favorite words, it's, it's a, for those who know who them is a Google whack, is an only has one single entry on, on Google, and that is to give in- human infants adult psychological qualities. So if you think your baby is smiling and being happy, you're being en-elico- enelicomorphic. You are guilty of enelicomorphism. Okay. So I mean, rather than just having wind. Rather than just having wind. Okay. Actually, actually I'm going to defend I'm going to defend mother I'm am I'm, I'm I'm gonna have a real go at you now. I'm gonna have a go at you. The interesting thing is if I, if I can di- divert just briefly into, into human, human developmental psychology, because, interestingly enough, lots of the arguments about animals have been also applied to human infants and human neonates. And the, the really interesting thing is that, uh, I'm getting sufficiently old, when I started doing psychology, there were still arguments about whether very young infants could actually see, okay? Could they, if they could actually see, see. in any meaningful way. And um, they did lovely experiments. For example, they, they they would sit a little little baby up a neonate, sort of you know just a just just a few minutes old, and they would accelerate objects at their faces, okay, and and the baby would go oh you know they get all surprised and, and and sort of slightly upset, which showed they could actually see. And interestingly enough, people used to be deeply sceptical of of the abilities of human neonates and used to take make fun of mothers and fathers who thought that their babies were smiling and all the evidence shows now that actually young infants are really very very socially sophisticated and even when they're just just a couple of a couple of minutes old for example they will do imitation if you poke your tongue out at them they'll poke it poke it out back back at you so it's mothers 10 scientists nil over the past 30 or 40 years okay now so there's the spectre of anthropomorphism hangs over the whole of this thing about animal mind. I want to go briefly about why is it this case? Why might there be this skepticism? In, in some ways I, I should junk all this bit because you, you, you all signed up to, to animals having emotions and feelings. But I should go about why, where, what about it? Why are why scientists And generally there is, a, there is a skepticism about animal mind. And it's historically been been quite interesting what's happened. There's a very, very famous comparative psychologist who who sort of was immediately after Darwin called Conway Lloyd Morgan. And within the uh, uh, comparative sort of animal behaviour literature, one thing he wrote has had real profound... It rings down down the centuries, and it's called Lloyd Morgan's Canon. Okay, and Lloyd Morgan's Canon is... In no case is an animal activity to be interpreted in terms of higher psychological processes if it can be fairly interpreted in terms of processes which stand lower in the scale of psychological evolution and development. So, what that's really trying to say is that look, we mustn't over interpret. We must go for the basic bottom, we must go for the simplest explanation. It's, it's a often regarded as a restatement of occam's razor i e the simplest explanation is best so we mustn't grant to animals any sophisticated abilities if we can possibly explain them with more simple ones okay so so that has really but if you actually read that carefully interestingly enough all he's saying is he's not saying that they don't have high levels he just said you mustn't use them if you can go for a lower one but very much this has been interpreted as a prohibition of really of granting animal sophisticated abilities now you know science is a, is a social is is a social activity like like it like any other and 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 very particular you know chance things have had profound influences and the other and the next thing that's really had a really big effect on the animal sciences has been a horse okay now, this horse is called Clever Hans, okay? And Clever Hans was really clever. He can do he can do pretty com- he could do pretty complicated algebra. He could speak Russian, okay? And he, he could speak French as well. And you know he, he you know, square roots. You know if you asked him the, what the fourth prime number, he could do that as well. He's a very smart animal. And the way they found out what they would do is they would say is they'd say to Clever Hans tell me square root of 16 and he would beat it out with his hoof and whatever else question and he was brilliant and this is sort of the early early 20th century and they actually formed a commission to try and find out because people were fairly sceptical of clever Hans that he really could speak Russian and do algebra Okay, and what they found out was is that the, the, the guy who was, who was doing this, who, was, who was, uh, was called von Osten, he really wasn't a charlatan. He really believed this. And what they found out was is that if you could stop Hans seeing the person asking the question, he couldn't do it. Or if the person who was asking the question didn't know the answer, Hans couldn't do it. And what clever Hans was doing... Was he was paying attention to what to what the person was doing, and the person, when they when he reached the right number, was displaying some subtle sort of behaviour. So they would get some some complete stranger in off. So the, it wasn't it wasn't a cheat. Nobody was sort of doing this, but the horse would be paying attention to the non-verbal behaviour of the person asking the question. Okay, and and so clever Hans wasn't so clever after all. I mean. But uh, interesting enough, I mean, the thing I've always thought about this, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, it's very interesting how 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 suddenly, if you read the history of that, he suddenly became a really dumb horse, but he's actually really pretty smart. And this is this is this is, and actually, um, clever Hans had a big uh, effect on starting double-blind trials when you don't know. So so when you don't know that uh, as as the as the tester. Yeah, you know, what's going on with the, what's going on animals? So, so actually, Clever Hans had a really big effect. So, so people have been really, really nervous of being of, of committing this error again, of over-interpreting, of not doing the science correctly. So, interesting enough, Clever you know the Clever Hans effect, where every scientist is really nervous of being caught out like that. So, skepticism about animal mind. Has, is being at the very centre of of, of, an, of animal research for some quite interesting historical reasons. Okay, and this is an even older reason. <coughs> it's all Descartes' fault. Okay, now uh, sometimes I, I I do have to keep my scorn out of my, my my voice about 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 some contemporary science. What's very interesting about Contemporary scientific approaches to, to minds and bodies, and about, about, about mind, is it still very Cartesian? And what do I mean by being very Cartesian? There's still this idea of there's a mind and there's a body. Today we don't tend to talk about mind and bodies, we tend to talk about mind and behaviour. Okay? But the principal problem of knowing of why people are sceptical about animal mind is very simple. I can see your behaviour. I can't see your mind. How do I know about your mentality? The only way I can know about your mentality is making an inference from your behaviour to an internal mental state. So it means that knowledge Of minds if you start from the position of being a mind-behavior dualist and almost all contemporary psychology and if you know if you open a psychology textbook you know first page psychology is the study of mind and behavior how do we get to mind and the function of behavior is just to get the to the internal now so we can only know mind by inference Now, the interesting thing is, is that, so how might I know about your minds? The standard explanation about how I know about your minds is called the argument from analogy. I know, because I'm a person, that when I cry, I'm sad. I observe you crying, you're sad. Now, the really upsetting thing, and I I love to play this game with the skeptics, is I saying, look, if you want to play... Hardball, knowledge hardball about knowing about animal minds, I'm going to play hardball about knowing about human minds. Okay, because you know, if that's your starting position, if, there's, if you can only get to mind via behavior, if you think they are two separate entities, as amazingly enough, people still do, philosophers are quite amused by that position. But that is the position that science finds itself in, and that is the very root and heart of the skepticism about animal mind, is how can we ever know what it is? Because, you know, if I went to your head and I, and I looked inside it, where is your mind? You can't weigh it, you can't see it, you can't smell it, but we infer it from behavior, okay? And uh, you know, we know, how do we know about inner states that people have? Well, outer states are easy. I can see if you're tall, I can see which, you know, which ethnic group you come from. I can see a certain weight, race, or whatever. I can see that, but how do you know about inner in mental states? I'll just do a brief little bit of metaphysics with you. What, what one example of how about if, about if you believe in mind-behavior mind, mind separation is the classic example from lots of philosophers use. It's called the inverted spectrum problem. The inverted spectrum problem goes like this. I see blue and I call it blue. If you see blue, what you expe- actually experience is yellow. But when you see yellow, I would see blue. So it's so exactly reversed. What I think is blue, you think is yellow. And what you think is yellow, I think is blue. Now, it's not like being colour blind. You know, that's perfect discrimination, but we cannot know about the experiences of other people. Okay? So one of the starting points is, is that 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 we that one of the standard arguments is look we can we can't know about what it's like to be another animal but we can but we are more secure about knowing about human mind because we are people. But if you my, but the point I always want to make about that particular argument is if you are founding and grounding your knowledge of humans in that way, you should be. And lots of lots of philosophers argue this. They said, look. If you're really going to be a sceptic, you should be at least as skeptical about other human minds as you are about other animals. Okay. I've got time to go in for this for, for this talk, but I am, I, I'm deeply unhappy with mind-behaviour mind dualism. And uh, if you want to go deep, uh, deeper into that and you want to sort of get a really good... Th- I, I really recommend this book. This is absolutely... Fa- sorry, don't worry, I don't have any shares in Bristol Classical Press, so I promise you. <laughs> This is a really fantastic book. Unfortunately, it's out of print. It's brilliant on this issue of, of, of how we might know about other minds. But as I say, there is a deep skepticism, and the skepticism is centered on this mind-behavior dualism, that how can we know that, that, if, that if you buy into the fact that there's minds and bodies, you can only know mind via inference. That is at the very heart and the very root of skepticism about animal mind. Okay. Now... Do animals have emotions? Okay. Now you're obviously a nice, cuddly, friendly audience who thinks animals do. But how will we know if animals have emotions? Well, I'd like to be able to go to Boots and get Paul's patent emotionometer. Okay. Now some people might say, well, how might we know about emo- how might we know about emotions in other animals? Some people would say, well, actually, we could do it via brain. You know, we could look at brain states. But interestingly enough, it's knowing about emotions has told us what's going on in the brain. So, for example, when people have stimulated little, little bits of the brain, they've observed that the, the animal has suddenly become enraged, or they've suddenly become, in, they've become very lustful or very scared. So what, what's actually happened is, is because we know what fear is, we know what anger is, we are then able to say, aha, that bit of the brain is controlling fear or anger. But the primary data is not the brain. It's, it's what we see. Okay? The ultimate measure of what an emotion is, is us. That, we, we are the emotionometers. Okay? And for example, somebody might say, I mean, what, one example that does always calls me some wry, Amusement, I don't want to make light of it, but but for example, there's an RSPCA report a couple of years ago about stag hunting. And they said, how do they know that stags don't like being hunted? Well, they looked at blood cortisol levels. Now, the point is, is we know that blood cortisol is a measure of distress because we saw distress in an animal, then found out when we measured the blood cortisol that it was raised. But the primary data is always our experience we are the ones you know if, if somebody actually needed to actually take blood cortisol to see the distress the animals in you know as far as I'm crazy it's it's actually for my money it's bad science because the primary data is always us you know if we know we know about the brain functions of, of emotions because we know we've labeled the emotions first okay so I haven't. I should really have started with a definition of emotion, but never mind, we'll come round to it. What do we mean by emotions? Actually, emotions are pretty slippery about when does an emotion become a mood and when does it slip into a personality trait. It's all a bit slippery, so don't push me hard on any definitions. But we can go for a distinct psychological state that involves subjective experience, physical arousal and a behavioural response. Most psychologists say it's got to have a bit of experience, bit of behaviour, bit of physiology. So, subjective, physical, and behavioral component. Now, interestingly enough, prior to Darwin coming, coming along, the argument was is that only human beings actually had emotions. And they argued, quite a lot of people would argue that, they used to argue that they didn't really have proper facial expressions, and that's an indication they didn't have a soul. It, it's not quite as clean, clean as that. There, there really was c- quite a lot of, you know, quite a lot of belief, a variety of beliefs, even within Western European culture about animals. It's really quite comparatively recently that people used to put animals on trial for for for, for stealing people's uh, cabbages. You know, and you know they put pig on trial for stealing somebody's cabbages and. Uh, Okay, you may find that surprising. The next bit of next bit of, just, just puts me in mind of people used to be so convinced that very young infants didn't experience pain or distress. They used to do operations, and this is really within within people's lifetimes, that they used to do operations on neonates without anesthesia. Because anesthesia carries some risk, but they thought you know, babies. How do we know what babies experience? Because the same argument applies to babies as it does to as it does to adult humans. You know, we can't know what, what about their mentality. So I'm sorry, that's a bit of a di- diversion. But but it was really Darwin was really an interesting person. He really did change change the world view. And he and his most important book for psychologists was this book. Was was not actually the Origin of Species so much. Was this book, The Expression of the Emotions in Man and Animals. And interesting enough. Despite the fact there's been deep skepticism about animal mind in the scientific community, actually, it's big Darwin's big take-home message for psychology was the continuity of mentality across species. And he has nice plates of sort of, 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 uh, of this is a, 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 a dog ex- you know, in very submissive uh, tone and a cat being friendly. He's, you know, he's very keen on the idea of, 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 of emotions. Now, so... Just to go over why did, why, did, why, was, why did Darwin write this book? Well, he had this very simple idea that emotions are the primary organizers of behavior. It's always interesting in popular culture when we say, oh, somebody's so emotional as if this are somehow inherently dysfunctional. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Emotions are the way Well, certainly what Darwin claimed, emotions (laughs) are the basic organizational building blocks of behavior. That's how evolution gets you to do the stuff you need to get done. Okay? So, emotions are functional adaptations. basic thing is avoid what is harmful, approach what is beneficial, and there's some facilitation of, of communication. Okay. So, if we went through... Functions of emotion, fear, survival, avoiding danger, anger, securing res- resources. So love, affection, reproduction, nurturance, social bonding, sadness. And some of these you, explanations you might find more convincing than others. But sadness is one of the ideas is that you gain social attention. You cry because, you know, you want at some ultimate level to be nurtured, to be cared for. Happiness, you do things that ensure repeat behaviour. Surprise, attention to novelty in the environment. Curiosity, finding new resources. So, I, like, I, I, I just like animal pictures. Just an excuse. This is, this is you know, avoiding harm. Actually, this is, this is our old family pet, who's actually a very charming, beautiful Vimarana, but, but I, just, I just love that picture of being, being a cross dog. She wasn't very happy that day. Okay, and I, I like that. You know, you can really see the visceral hatred, and so I, d- I just, uh, I just like these pictures. I can see a sweet audience. You know, you can get going R oh, a bit. You know, you get you know, particularly like good, particularly like polar bears. Yes, yeah, something we like you know, and uh, so. Interesting enough, the one, what I've just discussed—the the emotions I looked at are looked at—are generally called the primary emotions, and they're to adjust the body's physiology and behavioural priorities appropriately, direct attention appropriately, and what do we mean by appropriate? In evolutionary terms, survival and reproduction. Okay, so that's why you have anger, fear, disgust, curiosity, all the rest of it. Okay. However, oops, sorry, slid off the edge. I should. Great thing about working in, in 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 animal behaviour and psychology is nobody can really agree about anything, and that uh, most people would these are the, these are some really important theorists in the area, and these are their basic emotions, and they have various reasons why they why they think that that these are the limited ones. Interesting enough, most people would agree with anger and fear. Uh, interesting enough, if I, were to, if I were to summarize which probably is the most popular uh, list of basic or primary emotions, it's probably Ekman's, which is anger, disgust, fear, joy, sadness and surprise. Okay. My one, I'll show you the one I particularly am in favor on. So, why might we call them basic or primary? Well, in the literature, the claim for basic or primary emotions is that they're present in many species. And if... They can be seen clearly in human infancy. They have a clear evolutionary function and purpose. You can see them across all cultures. Because, you know, so in other words, you'll be able to see all of these across all human cultures because they are biological. And also the argument would be they require little sophisticated cognitive development. You know, when, you're a little, when you're a little child, little infant, two days old, bang, you've got them. You can be a relatively primitive mammal, you've got them. Okay, so... The argument is they're present in a lot of species. Okay, you can see them in in very young human neonates. Clear evolutionary origin. Now, the interesting thing about about brain anatomy is that uh, the mammal brain hasn't really changed for (laughs) quite a few million years the only difference between your brain and uh, a horse or a dog is it's a bit bigger, but what's what's actually happened in in, in the evolution of brains is that they have all the same bits in all the same places. Okay? You just have a little bit more of this stuff, a little bit more neocortex relative to the size of the rest of the brain and relative to the size of your, of your body. Interesting enough, your emotional brain, which uh, uh, controls the primary emotions, that's exactly the same in a tiger as it is in you. But luckily, tigers don't have nuclear weapons. Okay. And interestingly enough, that the that the functions of all the different bits of the brain are essentially the same. We have the very, very similar brain structures. If you dissect a brain, it's very interesting. I can draw you a picture of a mammal brain, and it will be all the same bits in all the same places. We just have a little bit, bit more neocortex. Okay. Um, And in fact, for those of you who ever had a drink of alcohol, you can actually see how this primitive bit of the brain which controls our emotions works because uh, this bit of the neocortex here is on our frontal lobe, is constantly sending messages to our limbic system, to our bit of our basic primary emotional brain saying, don't do it, saying, don't go up to her. Don't—he's annoying you. But don't hit him. Okay. This constant in- inhibitory—and it's one of the reasons that al- one of the things that alcohol does is that alcohol is one of the biggest central nervous system depressants there is. It's just a top central nervous system depressant. However, you get release of behaviour, you get this aggression, you know, hypersexual behaviour, whatever, is because the first thing alcohol does is take out this bit of the brain which is inhibiting inhibition. Yes. the same as being depressed. No, 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 sorry, 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 sorry. what I was saying is, is it, it's basically stopping the brain working. When I say depressant, it's basically stopping the actual function. And, and what happens is, as you drink more and more and more, is the alcohol permeates down your system. And it gets into the ascending reticular activating system and you gradually go to sleep because of it. But, as I say, our brains are remarkably similar. And the bits of the brain that control these primary emotions are precisely the same in a tiger as they are in, are in a person, as they are in a rat, okay? And lots of what we know about, about human brain function we know from animal models. And, you know, in common to cult cultures, this chap Ekman went out to, to New Guinea and he showed people pictures of, of uh, who'd never seen white men p- before and showed them pictures of p- faces and could they make sense of them, they could make sense of them. And we can make sense of young infants. My favourite, my plug... For my favourite, uh, who I think oh I think who's the best neuroscientist working in this area, uh, I actually think the basic emotions are. I think there's a seeking system. I think there's a fear system. I think there's a rage system, a care system, a panic system, a lust system, and a play system. And what I tell all my students is that despite lots of people saying that for people have as a prime emotion something like love, I think it would save a lot of human misery. If we understood that the care nurturing system was entirely independent of the lust system, okay, just a top tip for living your life there. Okay, and just 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 to sort of make clear, I mean, it's very interesting how lots of people still. You talked a lot to lots of of doctors, and they're kind of sceptical about the relationship between mind and body. Actually, that's not a very helpful slide. Actually, the next slide isn't very clear either. But it's very but you really should know that your emotional brain is hardwired into every physical system in the body. So your psychological state at any one time. So, for example, if I was st- I'm standing here talking to you now, just your very presence is, is raising my heart rate, is you're actually making me live a little bit less long because you've raised my cortisol levels, you know, my blood pressure's a bit up. And if I am standing here just talking to myself, you know, I'll be much more relaxed. Sorry, this isn't a very good picture, but I'll try and talk you through it. I I I I, I took it out and it looks fine on the screen, and then I looked at it now. Basically, I'll talk you through it. Essentially, what that's showing is that is that you have a feed from your from your emotional centre in your brain to every single organ in the body all the time. That you are your every single organ in your body is receiving feed from your emotional brain every millisecond. It is. Unchanging, and the interesting thing is, is just how our emotions are so hardwired, and this is, and this system has been the same in species for tens of millions of years. So I, I'm very keen on cartoons. You've seen cartoons where you got the, where where you get Wiley Coyote, and and his eyes stick out on stalks. Okay, it's actually a nice piece of observation. The muscles around your eyes, when you get scared, tighten, and they push. Your eyeball out, which improves your peripheral vision. Okay? You know, it's observed. The, the, the number of changes, when you get stressed at all, you know, your blood becomes easier to clot, for, for it to clot. You know, your, your, the stroke volume, the amount of blood you're pumping around increases. The stroke volume, how much blood your heart pumps around at any time. Uh, one of my favourite adaptations is is what happens to your sphincters when you get when uh, at reasonably moderate levels of stress all your sphincters tighten up so you're not going to you know that that sort of expression of you know know you're not going to wet so if you're frightened but if you are really terrified you lose control of your sphincters okay it's a lovely adaptation because it makes you considerably less tasty okay so and so your psychological state and, your, and this, so your emotions are hardwired into every aspect of your being. So, for example, when you get frightened or at all anxious, increase in heart rate, blood pressure, blood volume, increase in blood glucose, inhibition of digestion, immune and reproductive f- function, increase in pain threshold, behavioral consequences, brief mobility. Rapid escape or wild attack become more likely. So what I'm saying is is these are very primitive and ancient things, and they are hardwired into all of your everybody, every mammal. So most theorists now accept that animals do have some emotions. Big debate whether or not animal emotion is quantitatively different to human emotion. So interesting enough, if you read the literature, lots of people will say that, yes, animals are frightened or animals are... Uh, have happiness or whatever, but they will say they don't experience it. They have the physiology, they have the behaviour, but they do not have the experience. And that comes back to my original point: is that if you believe, if you are mind-behaviour dualist, you then have you, you've got you can't prove that they they experience it. So there are many, 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 many theorists who who argue that well they have they have the behaviour, they have the physiology. But they don't really genuinely experience it. it. That's I'm 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 totally with you on that point. I say it depends who which way which way around you want to prove it, and as uh, which way around you want to put put the emphasis. And and I always say I actually think it's the most parsimonious. It's the most simple explanations to say well if we think human beings have it, you know well. Actually, probably the most parsimonious, the simplest explanation, animals have it. And um, uh, you know so so it and and, it, and it's where you put the onus of proof. Okay. Now, implicit in the idea of primary emotions is that there are other kinds of emotions. Okay. And these are sometimes called secondary emotions, sometimes called refined emotions, sometimes called self-conscious emotions. And they are, you see, you were a good audience. I had to work at you getting the right answer, but you eventually gave me the answer I wanted to hear. Which is, most people want to talk about things like empathy, jealousy, shame, guilt, pride and embarrassment as being much more sophisticated and qualitatively different. If we think about the primary emotions, the primary emotions are often to do with organizing bits of behavior like hunting, escaping, paying, to, paying attention to novelty in the environment. But if we look at these emotions, these emotions are to do with regulating social interaction. Okay, so things like empathy, jealousy, shame, guilt, pride, embarrassment, these are to do with regulating social interaction. Now, lots, as I say, lots of scientists, as we've seen, will grant animals primary emotions. They won't grant them, often they won't grant them the experience of having these emotions, but they will grant that, okay, they, have, they, might, have, they might get frightened. However, the vast majority... Of scientists would argue that only adult humans have these emotions, okay now the interesting thing about these emotions is they regulate social interaction. now some of these uh, I think are more are easier to interpret as functional adaptations than others so so, for example, if we uh, take something like, uh, some, something like guilt, one of the ideas about the reason we experience guilt is that guilt stops us doing things that are going to annoy people in our peer group, other members in our social grouping. We are a social species. We really, really want to avoid annoying other members of our social group. So how, 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 how has evolution done this? Well, it's given us guilt. Okay. Uh, and if you think about something like, uh, oops, sorry. You think about something like, like empathy. The reason that we have empathy is that again we are reinforcing social bonds. We, if we can, if we can experience what somebody else has experienced, we might go to their aid. It's going to strengthen social bonds. So something like jealousy is avoiding either losing a sexual partner, losing, or losing somebody who's going to be. Um, uh you know important to you in in the hierarchy so you want to make sure that you have a you have a you know that you maintain your friendship group something like pride why do people display pride well it's establishing your position in the hierarchy you know without having to do too much fighting if you can show what a clever what a brave what a big what a strong person you are you can establish your position in the hierarchy okay so What's the standard argument? Well, the standard argument is do many species have secondary, uh, secondary emotions? Most of them say no. Why? Interesting enough, it's often a very circular argument. If you Google secondary emotions, you'll get about four or five hits. But it's worth doing because most of them are me. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Because, if you like, what, what defines primary emotions is that they go across lots of species. And one of the arguments is, there's a number of arguments why they say that only human beings have them, and only adult humans, is they say only adult humans or near relatives need them. When I say near relatives, I'm actually not that interested in gorillas, orangutans, chimpanzees, because if they can do smart things, everybody just says, it's just because they're like us. So, I really like pigs and... And and dogs and cats and, and gerbils because nobody says they can do things because they're like us. Now I find this a very strange argument because my argument is there are lots of other species who are highly social, who I would argue are more social than we are. You know if, I'm, I'm sure you've all seen meerkat worlds and I've always seen you know I've, I'm sure you've seen the uh, you know stuff on naked mole rats or horses or or or, 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 or lion prides. A very, very highly social species. And my question always is to people who are sceptical about animals having secondary emotions is that these animals have to regulate their social interactions. They have to cooperate. They have to establish hierarchies. If they're not doing it by emotions, how are they doing it? Okay? And my argument has always been that, well, do you think they sit down and have a chat about it and write a set of rules? You know, I actually think the more parsimonious explanation is that secondary emotions, just as in humans, they, they regulate social interaction. And, um, so as I say, yes? You know, I'm not quite sure about the de- definition of parsimonious, can you? Oh, I, I would just say it's the simplest explanation. What, the, but what does parsimonious actually Oh, it, it, uh, well, it, But the law of parsimony yeah. is 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 that you should always use the simplest oh, okay. explanation. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So so the so 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 the whole point is, if you look at lots of these lots of these uh, uh, emotions, they actually help to regulate social interaction. As I say, another reason they think most animals don't have secondary emotions because they can't. Why? Well. Secondary emotions are also thought to require sophisticated self-consciousness. And interestingly enough, lots of people argue that secondary emotions are based on self-consciousness. And the argument goes, if animals haven't got self-consciousness, they can't have secondary emotions because secondary emotions require self conscious It's a circular argument. Okay? Now, it's called self-conscious emotions... And some some of them are called self-conscious evaluative. They would say most animals and very young humans do not have the requisite sense of self. Okay, so we've got a very interesting thing here. It's I sort of putting the cart before the horse. <laughs> now, now, I don't think that lots of animals do have a very sophisticated sense of self. But I do think they have self I, I do think they have secondary emotions. And my explanation is they don't require self-consciousness. There's some, they're, 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 they're more primitive than that. But, as I say, contemporary, if you, if you looked up secondary emotions, you wouldn't get many hits. If you looked up self-conscious emotions, you would get thousands of hits. Because the theory, if you like, it's a very interesting bit of science, in the history of science, is that this time, they've defined something by the theory to explain it. So, they've defined the phenomenon by its theoretical explanation, which is why I say it's to put the cart before the horse. Okay. Now, I do studies on secondary emotions in, I, I also do, just to maintain my scientific credibility, I, do, I also publish on statistics and research design, because you don't get much more hard science than that. I maintain my hard science credibility by doing difficult numbers, okay? But, I also do work on emotions. Now, the re- on secondary emotions in animals, and if I go to conferences, I'm sort of patted on the head as some sort of slightly sort of unusual person who doesn't, you know, who's sort of obviously has had too close a relationship with the pets and, and furry animals when, when when he was small. I should actually, I am actually my own worst enemy. I am, I have actually published a paper on the evolution of the teddy bear. Okay, actually in a top journal in Animal Behaviour. It's a very nice example of artificial selection. So, so so it's a, it's. A, uh, however, so I'll just give you a brief flavour about how, I, how I've gone about looking at, at emotions in, in uh, about secondary emotions in non in, 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 in humans. Interestingly enough, doing research on emotions in humans is very difficult. In a laboratory setting, can you imagine trying to set up a, uh, a laboratory setting where I could look at shame or guilt? or jealousy, they're actually difficult things to manipulate in, in the laboratory. So, I started off, when I first started getting interested in this, because I think that people, you know, are, we are the primary measures of emotion, I was curious to find out what people would say that animals had. So I, so I, so I, so I gave up, you know, basically I started with just massive questionnaire studies, and I just asked people about things like, well, of these emotions, which do you think are in different animals, and how confident are you? And if we look at things like embarrassment, shame, guilt, empathy, pride, grief, and jealousy, by the way, basically everybody thinks animals have, have, have the primary emotions. Anger, fear, surprise, everybody thinks that. But interesting enough, I became quite interested in as what, what framed my, where I was going to have a look for a secondary emotions. I looked in different animals... And I noticed, for example, that 81% of people claimed that their dogs were jealous. So that's one of the ways, because dogs are great to work with because they're nice and they're friendly usually, and everybody's got one. And and so that's one of the reasons I started off with, with jealousy in dogs. And what I did was, very simply, is I just was curious about, well, what do they think they meant by jealousy? What were the behaviors? What were the contexts? And because I want to get this stuff published in good journals, because that's how you get on in academia, I played the science game. So what I did was, is I went and interviewed all of, all of the owners about, about their dogs, and I also filmed them. Okay, so, so I've got a record. So I said, what, what... I asked them, does your dog get jealous? Can you give me some examples of the situation your dog gets jealous? Can you describe the behaviours your dog displays when it gets jealous? Can you think of anything else that could explain it? And and as I say, I also went off and filmed them, so I've got a nice behavioural record of what they're up to as well. But I I quite like some of the descriptions, so they actually they summarise what the behavioural um, uh, analysis as well. I I like situations in which your dog gets jealous on the rare occasions that we have a cuddle. Okay, so one of the things that seems to set people up, that sets animals up to jealousy, is if is if their if their owner and carer engages in cuddling or being friendly with somebody else okay so the context of what people thought was jealousy and we filmed all these episodes was a social triad a dog the significant other and an interloper okay so the stimulus behavior that led the animal to be jealous was affection or attention given to the interloper by the significant other so you've got the relationship between the dog and the and and the person and the significant other. Somebody else comes in. The dog doesn't like it. What does the dog do? You know, just pushes in. Just just says they they push in. They tend to push each other away. Jump up on the sofa and try to get get in between us and all these sorts of things. Now I had a bit of problem with integrating a. Uh, um, the a little video into powerpoint so do forgive me and and i was really stupid when uh, they're very hot on ethical things at the moment quite rightly but i didn't get any ever get any permission from anybody else to to show films because you have to ask for that if you film people privately you can't do it so i'm afraid you're going to get a not terribly good video of me when i had hair by the way the hairy one with the thing that 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 that's the dog, that's me. Now what I want you to pay attention to is can you see the nasty little growl here? And when I see and the interesting thing is, she's not very happy. And of course the funny thing is about it, it's not like I've taken her I've taken any of it away from her. You know, she's still getting attention and she's just grumpy that I'm giving, you know, poor odds. You see, she still doesn't want him around. And the interesting thing is, is people often say to me, oh, you're just being anthropomorphic projection. I say, I've put my money where her mouth is. Okay? Okay? So, um, so, so it, it's, it's just simple things like that. But how... And, and funny, enough, I go to conferences and, and I show videos like that. And I always say to sort of, people who... To emotion conferences and people as who... I say to them, if she isn't sort of jealous about that, what is it? What, what would you call it okay so and i forgot to show you my favorite prime emotion i'm sure you've seen it before but it's just i just i just really enjoy it so if you haven't seen this one And if you're good, I'll show you again. <laughs> okay, so, and we've uh, seen exactly the same when, for example, we, because because lots of people claim their horses were proud. And we thought that's a very curious thing to actually claim that horses are proud. But interestingly enough, People were very, very consistent in the story, and when we went to film them, it was exactly the same thing. That when you know, if another horse was introduced into the into the area or into another field adjacent, they would go into this very, very, very standardized display of making themselves charging up and down, showing all the fancy things they could do, how big they were, how strong they are, how fast they were, all these sorts of things. And it was a very stereotyped idea about what people thought thought was pride. You know, so situations, sees the other horses going past, when he just feels really well, play fighting and chasing the other horses around the paddock. What's very, what's curious about, about science is, um about, about, about the, about how science has evolved and developed, it's very interesting. If you talk to a human evolutionary psychologist, they have absolutely no problem at all with the idea that jealousy, you would find jealousy in dogs and those sorts of things. Because they say, look, things like jealousy have an ancient evolutionary root. You know, they are very old. And that they have no problem at all. But interesting enough, you talk to anybody working in animal behaviour and they really are sceptical. I mean, one very interesting fact. Do you know there hasn't been a book published called Animal Psychology for the last 80 years? They have animal behaviour... They have animal cognition, behavioral ecology, but nobody wants to say there's something called animal psychology. So, proud behavior, she prances around almost dancing, really showing off how strong and athletic she can be. So a lot of people see it as, 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 as showing off behavior. That's pride. And as I say, again, lots of evolutionary psychologists would say, well, that, that, that's where pride comes from. It's a very useful adaptation to be able to show how fit, big and strong you are and athletic you are ...without having to actually go in for the fight. Okay? So, and I would have it, ...but it didn't work, I do apologise. So, the other one, the guilt in dogs. Now, interesting enough, guilt is, is the emotion... ...that really winds other scientists up. They really hate if you say that dogs are guilty and I haven't really gone into it in that that much depth, but the reason they really don't don't want to allow dogs to feel guilt is that in many ways, lots of people argue that guilt is a very sophisticated emotion because it's it's showing an understanding of rules and that they violated a rule. And there's lots of people who have tried to explain away uh, uh, guilty behaviour in a dog. I've actually been trying to set up a really good empirical study of of dog of dog guilt behavior for a long time. It's actually quite hard because what I've been trying to do is, uh, without the owner knowing, I've tried to get the uh, I've tried to I've tried to get a dog to do something naughty, okay, <laughs> without the without without the uh, without the owner knowing, and then then let the dog. So in some cases, the dog's done something naughty, and sometimes it hasn't. And then getting the dog to come to the owner and seeing if the owner c- c- knows whether the dog has actually done something bad or not. The trouble is, I've, it's really hard to organise. And what I find is, is that you, you, you get the damn, the damn dogs won't misbehave. And of course, what the dog feels guilty about is different. You know some dogs they 're allowed to do different kinds of things, so setting up a really good, tightly controlled experiment with this stuff is really really, really hard and i 've really tried because you know, you know, if you want to get on in, in, if you want to convince scientists the more tightly controlled the experiment you can do the better but as I say it 's very difficult to 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 set up studies with, with with humans and as I say, if you do do studies with these things um, uh, he gets involved in whatever he's doing, and I can stand there. He knows when my voice, I've lost my temper. If he's taken or eating something, he knows he's not allowed because he knows he's been on the counter. Now, lots of people are explain this behaviour away by saying, well, look, when you tell them off, it is appeasement behaviour. And I don't have a problem with that. If you do tell a dog off, regardless of it's, whether it's done something wrong or not, it will usually go into appeasement behaviour. However, $64,000 question is... <laughs> Is does it do it when it hasn't been told off when it's just been caught okay so and we all know what the guilty behaviors look like okay you know and as i say that's 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 a classic example the tail's gone down the head's gone down they're looking and whatever else that is that's appeasement behavior okay so explanations do you believe that dogs have jealousy? Well, as I say, lots of people, and you get lots of conferences. The amusing thing about going to conferences with other scientists is they will give you a hard time during the, thing and, uh, during the talk, and then they'll come after you, and they say, well, the funny thing is, my dog, Albert. <laughs> you know, and then they start to tell you about all about them. Now, the other thing is probably say, well, are they genuine self-conscious? Are these really sophisticated emotions? And I say, I don't probably think so. However, I think that, uh, you know, for example, I don't think uh, dogs sort of pine away at night, thinking, "Does she love him more than she loves me?" You know, but I, so I But what I think is that dog jealousy is in the here and now. I suspect all these emotions are in the here and now. I don't claim they're sort of fully sophisticated in the way that human that, that human beings have, but I, I I think it's. I just think it's unlikely they don't have them, and. Finally, just getting on to does it matter? Well, the interesting thing is, is lots of people. I, I sort of uh, I say some of my colleagues are amused because I've done work on, or I'm very interested in, for example, pig happiness, and that always causes lots of people amusement. But in some ways, whether or not pigs, you know, are in, in industrial settings about their standard of their standard of welfare, their standard of um, uh, ha- happiness and their sa- sanity. Uh, it, it, I think is a very important moral issue about what you can do with animals. I sit on, an, uh, on a number of animal ethics committees, and in the animal ethics committees, you are deciding what you're allowed to do with certain species. The same with zoos, about what, about, about where you can keep c- the conditions you can keep zoo animals, you know, destruction of habitat. I, you know, I really do see that... that, that uh, what other animals experience and the nature of that experience is really not just an esoteric question i mean it re- I, I think it's it's one of the questions that that upsets more people more people or get people more out in the streets than almost than almost any other and uh so you know i, I actually think about you know knowing about animal mentality it is it, it's, it's really quite a serious issue and as i say it, it, it's 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 handicapped by that about our basic scepticism, and the basic problem with knowing about animal minds really comes back to this dualism issue. It's really fund- fundamentally rooted in a particular kind of metaphysics and the metaphysics of mind and body. If you ha- if you if you start from position of mind behaviour dualism, you've got a problem about knowing about about minds in other animals. And it's uh, for another talk i would i would like to convince you all of a particular philosophical position that, that i like called, called mutualism which i think which i think neatly gets around that particular problem but uh, as i say i really do think it matters so i um, my questions i i know as i was i i was i was hoping there would be at least one hardline skeptic here but do do non-human anim- animals have emotions yes i think they do if yes which emotions i think they've got a lot how would, how would we know? As I say, the interesting thing is, and I, and I think that what a lot of science, you know, to be a proper scientist, people love objective measures. They really want to say that, well, it's to do with this cortisol level, it's to do with this activity in the brain. The truth is, for me, the primary data source about how we know what another emotion is, is ourselves, is other human beings, other animals. That's how, that's how we know. And does it matter? Uh, well, I, I, think, I think it is actually a really serious issue, you know, and, and more and more people are becoming more and more uh, interested in, in, that, in, that, in that particular issue. So, I'm very fond of polar bears. So, thank you very much.